Welcome to your Apple Update. I'm your host, John Sharon, and we had a lot happen in the world of Apple this week. Uh, we started to see uh, reviews drop for the iPhone SE that Apple just announced recently and has now gone on sale, so people are starting to get those uh, shipped to them. If they haven't already, they will here in a few days. Um, certainly for the people that got up and, and uh, did it uh, early that morning. They didn't do a, one of those uh, super early in the morning launches this time, uh, give give people uh, a little more time to, to wake up and and start their day, but um, but still, you had to be in there right when they went on sale, or else uh, those ship times start to, start to get delayed. Um, but the iPhone SE is is a is a really uh, great product. Uh, basically, what Apple did was they took uh, the body of the iPhone 8. So if you looked at one of these things, it looks almost identical to an iPhone 8, with only some very minor differences, like the placement of the Apple logo, for example, and the faceplate on the white model and that sort of thing. But but otherwise, this is identical to the iPhone 8 body. Um, but inside it has the same A13 processor as the iPhone 11 and the iPhone 11 Pro. Um, so you get this, um, this great mashup of um, old parts that Apple knows how to assemble very well and can assemble them very cheaply because they have a lot of experience with them at this point from having uh, been manufacturing them now for three years. Um, and so that enables Apple to uh, offer this at a low price. It's $399 for a brand new iPhone. Um, and, but they mix that in with the A13 processor, so you're getting, especially in the realm of photography, you're getting some computational uh, photography tools because of that processor um, that you, you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. So the actual physical camera system is similar to that on the iPhone XR, uh, but it has an A13 processor, so you can do things like those high-key mono photos where you have that black and white portrait photo uh, where the background is just white or, or the black background. Um, and those are things that, that wouldn't have been possible without that A13 processor. So you, you get, um, you know, again, a little bit of, of, uh, of, uh, of the old as far as what's, what Apple's familiar with manufacturing and knows how to deliver, plus that new, uh, some of the, 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 the new guts from the new iPhone. And, and that mixed together makes for a really enticing product. And so Apple's going to sell a lot of these because, in fact, there was um, a blog post over at Android Central saying, Look, the iPhone SE has a better processor in it than just about any Android phone on the market, and we're talking about a $399 phone. Uh, so I, I think Apple's going to move a lot of these things. It, uh, it's certainly going to appeal to people who prefer Touch ID to Face ID. Um, I'm definitely in the Face ID camp, but there's definitely a lot of people out there who prefer that physical home button and prefer that Touch ID, and you're going to have that um, in the iPhone SE. And to some degree, it's the phone for the moment because... With so many people wearing masks, uh, you can't use Face ID with a mask. And so the few times that I've gone out in public um, to, to pick up food or something like that and I've worn a, a mask when I go through a drive-thru, um, you can't do Face ID. You've got to put in the passcode. And so if, if you have Touch ID, uh, you, can, you, you, know, you don't have that problem. And so that's certainly an advantage uh, of Touch ID and of the iPhone SE um, at this point in time. And it still has the... Uh, the capacitive charging, uh, so you can put it on one of the contactless or the, the plugless chargers that we a lot of us have now next to the bed at night or on the desk at work, that sort of thing. And that's a, a nice uh, addition uh, for people that maybe are upgrading from an older phone because I think a lot of the iPhone SE buyers are going to be folks who um, uh, are not people who uh, get the latest and greatest iPhone, but they're people that uh, probably bought a lower price iPhone or and or have just kept an iPhone around for a long time. So I think people out there who are still rocking an iPhone 6 or a 6S in particular are going to really uh, find this an appealing uh, model. 
Also, an interesting thing um, that I, uh, I heard pointed out, and I went and looked at it, and I was like, sure enough, this checks out, is that this means that um, for just over the price of the entry-level iPhone 11, the entry-level iPhone 11 starts at $699. So for about $750, you can buy the new iPhone SE, uh, a pair of AirPods, and the uh, Apple Watch Series 3, and uh, have a pretty killer set of Apple devices um, at that point. Um, all for just slightly over the price of the iPhone 11's entry price. So uh, that's pretty cool. So I think, you know, Apple's going to sell a ton of these. It will probably wind up being the best-selling phone Apple sells this year. Um, and uh, I think it makes a lot of sense in their lineup. And now when you look at their whole lineup, you can see a nice range of products at various price points. So a lot of different customers are going to be satisfied by what Apple has uh, to offer in that range. Um, so that's pretty cool. Obviously a downside for folks who were fans of the really small form factor. Of course, the iPhone SE that was released in 2016, the original iPhone SE was, at that time, they basically took the iPhone 5S body and put the guts of the iPhone 6S in it at the time. And uh, that was a really compelling offering then, kind of similar to the strategy that they have now with the, the current iPhone SE. Only that one was in a four inch, with a four inch display. And there are, um, I think the I think this group of people is small relative to very small relative to the overall iPhone customer base, but there is a small but very vocal and loyal uh, group of fans who prefer that four inch screen size. My wife is one of them. She does not want to go even to a four point seven inch screen. Now I think it's likely that her next phone will be the new iPhone SE because uh, you know the iPhone SE from twenty sixteen that she's using now is just not going to last forever. But you know there are a lot of uh, fans who really like that form factor and it is disappointing for them but I think you know while Apple was happy to appeal to fans of the four inch screen size back in 2016 with the original iPhone SE that's not what the original iPhone SE was all about the iPhone SE has always been about um, Apple bringing um, a low-cost iPhone to market that is inexpensive for them to manufacture but still has enough new stuff to be tempting uh, to folks and, and, and really kind of find a compelling uh, mix there of, of price and features. And it was never about the 4-inch screen, although, again, they were happy to, to sell to those customers who, who really like it for that reason. Um, but uh, I think it's going to be a great phone for people that have been hanging on to uh, one for several years now in particular. Uh, other big thing that happened this week was that customers finally began receiving uh, the new Magic Keyboard for iPad Pro. And uh, this was something that um, caught a lot of us off guard a bit uh, because there had been rumors for quite a while that Apple would be uh, announcing full-fledged uh, mouse pointer support for iPad OS at some point in the near future. But I think most of us really expected it to come this summer with iOS 14 and, at WWDC. But Apple uh, kind of surprised us all by, by making a big new feature available in a midstream update as part of the iOS 13 series and uh, brought true uh, mouse pointer support to iPad OS. Um, it had had um, a, a limited mouse pointer support um, uh, prior to that uh, from, from iOS 12 that was specifically designed as an accessibility feature, um, primarily targeted toward users who have some kind of mobility restriction and, and, and find it difficult to reach out and touch the screen. Um, but, of course, a lot of people um, began playing with it because a lot of people have been wanting uh, pointer support on iPadOS for a long time. Um, so, so there's been something that, that we could kind of play with and experiment with. But now 
as of uh, just about a month ago, we now have a full-fledged mouse pointer support. So as soon as that got uh, released, um, you know, I paired a, an Apple uh, Magic Mouse to my iPad Pro and began playing with that. And I've been using it for uh, about a month. And, you know, there's a couple of different types of iPad customer. There's the iPad customer who uses it as a secondary device, uh, mostly uses it for consuming media, browsing the web, doing email, and uses it mainly as a tablet. Um, and of course, that may sound like a duh thing, but um, the other customer set is um, people like me who, who use it for work and use it uh, primarily in laptop mode most of the day and use it uh, more sparingly in, in tablet mode. And mouse pointer support is, is big for those of us who, who do kind of use it as a laptop replacement in a lot of ways. And so it's been great to, to have that. And I want to do a piece here soon. I'm going to write a piece uh, just about my, my thoughts in general on what it's like to use a, a mouse with an iPad. It is definitely something to get used to a bit just because we've never had pointer support on an iOS device. Um, but it's definitely been something that's been interesting to play with and I've, I've been using it quite productively for the past month. Um, but now we have the Magic Keyboard, which is um, uh, basically a replacement and an upgrade from the Smart Keyboard Folio case uh, that Apple has uh, had for the iPad Pro for the last few years. And they've had that in a variety of, of kind of configurations. But um, what I have is the, the Smart Keyboard Folio for the 12.9-inch uh, the iPad Pro from, uh, from the previous generation, the 2018 model. And... Um, um, I love it. Honestly, I love typing on it. Uh, your mileage may vary. Everyone's got different tastes and opinions on keyboards, but I, I actually really enjoy typing on this thing. But the Magic Keyboard that Apple just released uh, certainly is an advance on the concept. It is, um, it's still a, a case that you put it in and it you know, folds, folds closed and, you can, and it covers the iPad both front and back. Um, but now um, the keys uh, use Apple's new scissor switch key design. Um, we have a trackpad built right into the Magic Keyboard. Um, we have a USB-C charging pass-through port. doesn't let you connect uh, devices like um, uh, USB flash drives or other accessories, but you can plug the charger into it. And that's kind of nice for two reasons. One, um, before it was a little awkward to, to use an iPad in laptop mode with, say, the Smart Keyboard Folio and, and charge it at the same time because you have the charging cable hanging awkwardly halfway up the side of the iPad when it's in that mode and that was just kind of an awkward thing. So being able to plug it down at the base of the Magic Keyboard um, feels a lot more natural and, and kind of the way it should be. But that also frees up the USB-C port um, on the bottom or in this configuration the side of the iPad to be used for other things like an accessory like plugging in a microphone, plugging in um, a, 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 an external display, plugging in a USB flash drive plugging in some kind of audio interface, um, lots of different options, and, and that's nice to have uh, the ability to do that while still having a way to charge the iPad uh, at the same time. And it's, it's very clever the way uh, the iPad sort of floats above the keyboard. It's magnetically attached to it, and you can kind of tilt it at several different angles, um, and, it, and it kind of floats over it, so it lifts it up a little bit more, which is nice because it is a little awkward to be kind of hunched over the iPad, and that is nice to have it float there a little bit. Um, I haven't gotten to see this in person, so I'm just going by reviews and Apple's press release documentation and just reading up on it. But my favorite thing about it, and I wrote a piece about this, is that um, one of the things that's difficult about using an iPad in laptop mode is that when you want to go to tablet mode, 
it, it's a little difficult to do that. Of course, you can take it off of the Smart Keyboard Folio, detach those magnets and take it out, but it's a little bit of a hassle to do that. And you can fold the keyboard back around behind it. And in practice, that's what I do most of the time when I want to kind of switch my context over to tablet mode. Um, but the, the Magic Keyboard really sort of invites you to remove the iPad off of it. Um, because of the fact that it's that the iPad is only kind of connected to um, the top two-thirds of the case makes it really easy to just to, just to kind of lift it off and take it with you and then the magic keyboard stand is just kind of sitting there and then when you're ready to go back into laptop mode you just walk up and just hold it in place and those magnets latch right back in and you're ready to go um, and that really appeals to me because I love uh, the opportunities to use the laptop and tablet mode and then go right back to laptop mode and you can do that really effectively with this new magic keyboard so um, that's cool to see and I can't wait to see one um, in person and then the other really big news with Apple this week is that Bloomberg uh, published a piece uh, going into a little bit more detail and again kind of again confirming as much as press reports ahead of an Apple announcement can confirm anything that Apple is indeed planning to um, start releasing Macintosh computers with ARM processors uh, starting next year and so we're probably going to hear uh, Apple lay that out for us at this year's WWDC and I can't wait to find out what they're going to do. So, you know, what they're what we're talking about here is transitioning uh, Apple's processors in the Macintosh line away from Intel processors into ARM processors that Apple has uh, another company manufactured for them, but are designed uh, totally in-house by Apple. And that's what Apple has has always done with the iPhone, uh, the iPad, the Apple Watch, um, and uh, and and they're looking to do that now with the Mac, the Apple TV has an in-house Apple design chip. And um, there's a lot of reasons why they want to do that. They probably pay Intel a good chunk of money uh, for each processor they buy, and they can have some cost savings that way if they do it their own uh, th themselves. But it also allows them to um, not be reliant on another company for one of the key components of, of, of the computer. You have to have a processor, and there's only so many companies that design and make them. And, um, and, and so Apple has had to be reliant on Intel's timetable in a lot of instances where they would want to go ahead and push forward and, and bring a, a Macintosh product to market, but they can't because there's not an Intel chip ready um, that matches the specifications, the thermal specifications and the timetable they want, etc. And so with Apple designing their own chips in-house, they can have complete control over that whole process, not have to pay, uh, of course they're paying a company to manufacture, but not have to pay this big licensing fee uh, to Intel to, to, to buy those chips and put them in the Macintosh um, and they can do it when they want to when they're ready according to the specific thermal and power specifications that they're looking for and that really appeals to Apple. Apple likes to control as much of its ecosystem as it can um, in part because they've been bitten in the past by having to rely on others. Intel for sure but certainly back in the power PC days before Apple switched to Intel you know they were you know famously at the mercy of IBM and Motorola on those processors and um, it, it was really costly to them as far as what they were able to bring to market uh, in the way they wanted to. So these these processors are also very fast. Um, you know, the high-end iPad Pro processors are even faster than a lot of Apple's current Macintosh line with Intel chips. And so there's a lot of potential performance improvements to be had. Battery life improvements, uh, significant battery life improvements are probably on the way for the Macintosh line. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see what Apple does. You know, it's, it's been 15 years since the last processor uh, transition like this in the Macintosh line. In 2005, 
uh, Apple announced the transition away from PowerPC over to Intel. And then in 2006, they began transitioning the entire line um, starting in January of that year over to Intel processors. And they did it very methodically and, and very quickly. Um, and so now there's, there's a lot of questions about how Apple's going to handle this particular processor transition. Um, one, are they going to transition the whole line over? And I kind of feel like they do. This kind of feels like the kind of thing that it would be hard to do half measure. Um, so it does seem like the most likely plan would be that they would, over some amount of time, transition the entire Macintosh line over to these ARM processors and away from Intel. And so that also brings up the question is, are they going to force developers to totally recompile their applications uh, from the get-go for this new ARM architecture? Or are they going to have some kind of emulation layer where you can run Intel apps on the new ARM processor? That was the direction they went with the last uh, processor uh, transition, where they had an emulation mode where you could still run uh, the PowerPC apps on the Intel Macs. And you paid a performance hit because you're emulating that other hardware, and so it can't run at full speed on the system. Um, of course, we've come a long way, and computers are a lot faster these days, so I kind of wonder exactly what that would look like today. Um, I think the best thing for Apple, it's a hope that they already are and have been working closely with the top software vendors, and I'm thinking in particular of Microsoft and Adobe, to go ahead and have those companies begin transitioning their apps now so that they'll be ready when those new apps, when those new Macs with ARM-based processors come out, that's that's the most uh, that's the best scenario we can hope for. Um, but you know, hopefully, it, it's going to be a little rocky. It was rocky in 2005. One thing that makes it a little less rocky now is that in 2005, um, they were only four years into the Mac OS X era. You know, Mac OS X was released in 2001. Apple makes the uh, announcement of the Intel transition in 2005, and that may seem like a lot of time because you're talking about really five years um, between the time that Mac OS X came out and between the time that the Mac line in full was was being transitioned over. But you know, in those days, um, you know, Mac OS X was a radical uh, evolution away from the classic Mac OS, and there were a lot of application developers who were very slow to develop for uh, Mac OS X for a variety of reasons. Um, and so even, even by 2005, I was working in Apple retail at the time, and I can remember still having customers come in who were just dead set against upgrading to Mac OS X. So at least Apple doesn't have anything like that going on. Uh, the current Mac OS is very stable. And there's you know a lot of support for it from the developer community. Um, it's just going to be what is it going to look like to transition all these apps over to ARM processors? How painful will that be for companies and schools and consumers? Will 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 it be easy to run old software uh, on this new processor uh, hardware architecture, or will consumers and businesses have to wait for complete rewrites of the apps that they rely on? That latter scenario would certainly be a painful transition point. So I'm hoping that's not the case. But we're going to find out probably as soon as uh, this June, which is, gosh, getting close to being a month away, as right now we're at the very end of April. And uh, I think it's going to be uh, it's, it's going to be the most interesting WWDC probably ever for a variety of reasons. One, because, uh, because of the COVID-19 situation, um, Apple's going to be doing it remotely. And what is that going to look like exactly? Apple hasn't even announced what the official dates are for WWDC are yet. Um, they haven't kind of been forced to because of people having to make travel arrangements. So 
Uh, at this point, we don't even know exactly when they're having it, but I would expect sometime in June. And um, so it's going to be interesting to see kind of how they handle and deliver those sessions at WWDC in this new remote world we find ourselves living in at present. And then on top of that, you're, you're, we're going to have most likely a lot of conversation in the keynote and in breakout sessions about uh, what this transition over to ARM looks like so that software developers can begin making whatever arrangements they have to make to get their apps ready for these new Macintosh computers. So big week, new products being uh, arriving for customers and getting reviews out and then continuing to see more smoke. Where there's smoke, there's fire. We're seeing a lot more smoke about this transition away from Intel in part or in whole over to ARM processors in the Macintosh line. So a lot of interesting things to look forward to uh, over the next few months for sure. That's it for this episode of Your Apple Update. I'm your host, John Sherrod, and we'll chat next time.